Sorry, that one came out way harsher than I meant it to be. It's accurate. I just meant Corrine has an opinion on everything, which is great and is one of the things that we love about her. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Keep It Fictional. Today, I will be your host. I am Fiona, and I am joined by my book friends, Virginia, Mark, and Corrine. Today, I have put out a challenge to my book friends that I am interested to see how they tackled. Of course, we all have our genres that we gravitate towards. But today, I have asked everyone to read a book outside of their regular genres, so in a genre they don't usually read. So not only have they had to read a book outside of their wheelhouse, they have had to analyze their own reading to figure out what exactly that means, uh, which is not always easy. So I can't wait to hear what everyone has picked and especially whether or not it was a hit or not. So I think first we're going to go over to uh, Kareem and see what they picked today. Yeah, so I love this challenge, Fiona. I think it's always good to kind of read outside your comfort zone. I think that's a really interesting challenge, especially at the end of the year, as we're kind of going back and analyzing all the things that we have read. And I definitely have wheelhouses that (laughs) I tend to stick to every once in a while. I don't usually confine myself to genre so much as I do format. And so that is what I chose to read outside of. I love fiction. I love nonfiction. I love children's books. I love YA books. But my weakness is poetry. I read approximately one poetry book every 17 years. And so this this was my time that I decided to pick up a book of poetry. It's just, it's so short. And if you're going to write something, why not write a book so that I understand what's going on? I love novels in verse. So books where there is a narrative of poetry that's especially popular in like kid stuff and YA stuff, but doesn't you don't really see a lot of adult novels in verse, which is a great detriment of the entire genre. So I challenged myself to read a book of poetry, which was a great pick because it's short. Oh, it's so short. Poems are so short. Which is to their benefit and also to their detriment because I don't always understand what they're trying to say or what's going on because they could use some more words to explain it. So I decided to pick up a book by Thomas King, who is of Cherokee and Greek descent. He is has the Order of Canada. He's very well known as an activist, a broadcaster, a writer, an essayist. Um, He's probably most famous for his book, The Inconvenient Indian, which was on CBC Canada Reads a couple of years ago. And this is his first book of poetry, which is 77 Fragments of a Familiar Ruin, Poems. And there are 77 of them. Um, Some of them are longer. (laughs) Some of them are shorter. 
I am going to read from the book jacket because I don't really know how to describe this. 77 poems intended as a eulogy for what we have squandered. A reprimand for all we have allowed, a suggestion for what might still be salvaged. It is a poetic quarrel with our intolerant selves, a reflection on mortality and longing, as well as a long-running conversation with the mythological currents that flow throughout North America. Showcasing his incontrovertible wit and trademark wordplay, Thomas King eases into this new terrain to draw our attention back to our painful history and the fragments of it that remain in our present story is what was happening here. (laughs) Some of them are awfully very short poems of like five lines. And I think they're supposed to be like a little bit kickier. Um, He definitely is running a commentary on the treatment of Indigenous people in North America, talking about the exploitation, definitely of resources, of land, that reconciliation is really about land back and nothing else, that colonialism and colonial governments are just there to take and take and take and take and take until there is nothing left and they will never stop. And into that, he kind of weaves the idea of Raven as this trickster figure of Coyote, of the story of the world being covered by water and uh, these animals kind of trying to dig down to find some mud so that I think her name is Evening, can kind of make the earth with it. There are poems about environmentalism, which I honestly really liked. (laughs) Who knew? I really especially liked poem 42. In Alberta, the sour gas wells rise out of the land like candles on a cake. Make a wish, blow them out. Make a wish, blow them out. It also talks about, I think, because I can't be sure because it's poetry and I'm not sure if I'm interpreting this right, the hopelessness of life. I think. So, for example, fragment 67, attending the wedding in spite of everything I know about funerals. Deep stuff. So, if you are wanting to dip your toe into poetry, because like me, you only, if I kind of dip up my entire life, it's one every 17 years. If your 17 years is up, I can recommend Thomas King's 77 Fragments of a Familiar Ruin poems in that it is short and you will generally understand what they are about. Thank you, Corrine, for sharing that with us. I mean, I guess if it's only once every 17 years, maybe not, but I feel like you're really deep down, like kind of a poetry person. It's just not in your like, it's, you know, it's just a 17 year uh, rotation. It's, you know, it's there. It's just a bigger wheel. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks so much for sharing that, Crane. Uh, We are going to move on to Mark now today. Very excited to see what is outside of Mark's wheelhouse. So today I'll be talking about a mystery novel, which is The Lady Killer by Masako Togawa. I would argue that mysteries are outside of my usual genre, though one person on this podcast did, in fact, disagree with me very verbally yesterday. Like, for example, the past two years, perhaps the only mystery novel I have read was just very recently, which is The Hunting Party, which we talked about on the podcast for the Locked Room episode. So I'm I'm sticking with that this is outside of what I normally read. The topic was not genre that you hate. It was genre that you don't normally read. So Masako Togao had a very long and wide-ranging career across multiple arts and like music 
things like that. So she became a singer in nightclubs before gaining larger popularity. And she also later became a club owner and manager. Her inclusive work has sort of made her an LGBTQ icon because many of her clubs and her writing were very inclusive at a time that was very different from now. It was very difficult. So she's earned a bit of a reputation over the years as being very inclusive and welcoming and representing a broader range of identities in her art. It's also said that she first began writing novels backstage between appearances as a singer at nightclubs. Um, and that's how her first novel, The Master Key, was written. And I believe The Master Key was already uh, talked about on a previous episode of Keep It Fictional a while back. So you can check that out if you're interested in hearing more about Tagawa's writing. So basically, in this book, the story is broken down into two parts. The first takes place at a time of a series of murders, three separate murders. And the second half is after a man named Ichiro Honda has been convicted of these murders. In the first half, we follow Honda's personal life and his self-proclaimed nature as a quote-unquote hunter of women. While he is married, he lives on his own most of the year in a hotel room in order to be closer to his work. So this sort of leaves him alone most of the time, and he spends his night cruising the town and the nightlife looking for women to sleep with, more or less. He keeps a diary of exploits in his quote-unquote hunting log. He refers to women as like prey, his kill, and very uh, unseemly terms such as these. We can sort of see that Honda is a very unpleasant person by today's standards, I would say. He's definitely not a very sympathetic character at all. As it, when he later gets framed for these murders that he didn't commit, um, we sort of are, have this kind of idea of does this man sort of more or less deserve what he gets when he is found guilty of these murders that he didn't commit? Or are we sort of more on the side of taking his the side of his lawyers who we follow in the second half of the book? Essentially, the first half of the book is broken down to three chapters that correspond to the days on which the three murders occur. And coincidentally, or not so coincidentally, all the three women who are murdered are women who Honda has slept with. Kimiko Suda, Fusako Aikawa, and Mitsuko Kosugi. All these women he met in nightclubs and cafes and nightlife establishments. So when the first murder occurs, Honda originally finds it nothing noteworthy or special when he reads about it in the news. Essentially, he just finds it a coincidence that this person who has been murdered is someone he happened to know this one time. It's only after the second murder that the coincidences start to seem strange. As the second woman murdered, Fusako Aikawa was the very same woman he was with on the night that the first woman, Kimiko Suda, was murdered. This series of coincidences basically pile up as each subsequent murder is of a woman who he was with previously and could provide an alibi for his whereabouts on the night of the previous murder, essentially. The source of his potential alibis for the murders are subsequently killed, thus leaving him without much of a defense for the previous murders, more or less. It's prior to the third murder that Honda catches on to this scheme and plans to warn the woman, but he's unable to make it in time, and she's already dead by the time he reaches her. Add on to this, he does not report the murder to the police. Instead, he decides to flee and essentially try to save himself from getting embroiled in this series of murders, because essentially then he would have to speak about his unsavory behavior toward women and his being involved in all these affairs. And while he's actually a married man in the 1960s, Japan, that would be a very sort of scandalous thing to be out sleeping with women every night while your wife is at home waiting for you, basically. The third murder is seemingly being immaculately staged sleep. No doubt that Honda was the murderer. 
The woman was strangled with a necktie that matches the size of Honda's. A pair of specially made shoes that match Honda's were found in her apartment. There's a rare blood type found under her fingernails, which is type ABRH negative. And there's also other bodily fluid evidence that would match Honda found at the scene. There's a lot of talk about these kinds of like biological evidence and these kinds of clues that play a very prominent role in the second half of the story. Because after Honda is convicted, essentially, his two lawyers who are representing an appeals court, Hatanaka and Shinji, go about trying to find holes in this sort of picture that were presented with in the first half. How can they find like the holes in the plot of this mystery murderer to frame Honda? And it largely centers around this kind of circumstantial and biological evidence as Hatanaka tasks Shinji with trying to find other women that were with Honda to sort of vouch for his character, as well as to track down anyone who has donated ABRH negative blood and other types of things like that to see if any of them had any type of contact with someone who may have used their blood in this manner. In the first half, we're presented with this very unsympathetic character and the situation that he finds himself in. And the second half is more a sort of traditional kind of detective, tracking down the clues, tracking down the contacts, doing the legwork to find different people who may be able to give them different pieces of the puzzle to try and assemble either a picture of an alternate murderer that they can cast reasonable doubt that Honda committed the murder or to even find someone who they can then point towards as the actual murderer, essentially. And throughout these investigations, we sort of get this sort of sordid kind of underworld kind of feeling as Shinji sort of comes into contact with like a film company employee who visits Turkish baths to a gay bar host who provides other kinds of services as well. And essentially, you kind of have this sort of sordid kind of underbelly kind of sexualized tinge to very much in the commentary of the story as it kind of has a somewhat moralistic feel to it, that I wasn't quite sure which side Togawa was on, if she's trying to condemn these people or if she's trying to say that the moral kind of opprobrium of the general population is leading to these kinds of scornful attitudes of the characters, such as Shinji, because he has a sort of running commentary of judgment about these characters. And I wasn't quite sure if Togawa was trying to say that she feels that this is wrong or that this person is right, or if she's just trying to present this kind of social attitude of the time. So I would have liked it to be would have been a little bit clearer in that regard, but it still kind of had an interesting presentation of these facts and attitudes. And so if you like putting together clues and scientific style analysis of traces, um, trying to figure out who the killer is, who may have been involved in these things, or if you just like a good framing scheme, then you may also like The Lady Killer by Masako Togawa. Thank you, Mark. Uh, While some others may not, I'm going to give you a pass on that one uh, and give you props for following the letter of the assignment, but still reading a Japanese author. (laughs) All right. We are going to go over to Virginia now. All I can say is it's not horror or sci-fi. No, because I'm not allowed to today, right? I think that's the assignment. So I guess unless you count those with vampires and zombies or Space Cowboy Spike Spiegel, I don't think I have ever read a Western Western before. So that's what I decided to tackle this 
week. And I chose from the backlist of an offer that I recently discovered and I really, really loved his book. And I'm sure you will hear about it on an upcoming episode because I would like to tell the world about that book. But for today, I just kind of went back to one of his older books. And like many Westerns, we begin our story with a white man. Kurt Mader, sometimes known as Dirt Mader because people misheard his name. He is right now standing atop a hill, watching smoke rising from his house, which is currently being burned down. He sees these four or five men circling around his house, laughing, hollering at each other. One of them dragging his wife, and then he sees them throw her onto the horse like a rolled-up carpet. He sees his dog's body no longer moving. And Kurt thinks he should go down and confront them. But he only has half a mind to do that. So instead, he turns his horse right around and heads back to town. There he went to the bar and then he starts to tell his story to anyone who will listen, hoping that someone would pity him and maybe buy him a drink. But nobody really cares about his story until they hear about the dog and they all feel so bad about the dog. And as he's telling the story and as they're like, oh, well, you better do something. What are you going to do? And he suddenly feels compelled. Yes, I should reclaim what is rightfully mine. Does he really care for his wife? Nah, not really. But you know what? That's not the point. It's mine. They take something of mine. I need to get it back. And so they say, yeah, well, you better start early because you don't want to lose their tracks. And you know what? You should hire Bubba. Bubba is the best tracker in town. Kurt is not so sure about that because Bubba is a black man. I don't know if I want to hang out with a black man, he thinks. And then, of course, when he went to finally see Bubba and explain what he needs Bubba to do, Bubba was like, oh, yeah, sure pay me? What are you going to pay me with? And Kurt is like, didn't you just hear my story? My house got burned down. I have nothing left. Well, you still own your land, don't you? I want half of it. And I get to decide where the dividing line is. And Kurt is like, how dare this man telling me that he wants my land? But then he knows that this is his only chance. So he reluctantly agree Meanwhile, in the back of his mind, he's thinking, can a black man even own land? And so these two set along the journey, along with Jake, a boy, maybe about 12 years old, even though he claims to be a lot older. This boy who begged Kurt and then bit him on the leg and refused to let go until Kurt agrees to take him along because he overheard Kurt's story and he thinks the man who burned down Kurt's house are the same people that killed his parents. So he wants to go along to avenge their death. And so here are these three people going on a quest. Now, if this feels like a setup for a found family story or maybe a story about a white man finally learning a little bit of humility, learning a little lesson, well, that's not what God's Country by Percival Everett has in store for you. Curtis, well, 
I don't know if he's even merit the adjective unlikable. Like many of his actions, yeah, for sure, they're unlikable, they're detestable, even. But as a person, he's just kind of there. Like he's there's nothing remarkable about him, and the only thing that saves him from all of this is his skin color, and that's kind of all he's got going for him. Whether he acts or whether he doesn't act, he never really have to suffer the consequences. It's all the people around him that suffer. Does Kurt's conscience sometimes serve us? Sure, but never quite enough for him to really do anything about it. And he just thrives on this ignorance and this indifference. And here's this man who has all the choices, all the opportunities to do whatever he wants, but yet he just sort of falls into this bizarre quest kind of like Kafka-esque almost, and he just let it all happen to him. And contrast that with Baba, a man who is not given an iota of slack in life, that everything, because he is Black, that he has nothing. No one thinks anything of him, but yet he's the one in the book that has intention. He's the one that has agency to try to do something with his life, at least to do what he wants to do. And I think by centering the narrative on this white man, Everett really shows how ridiculous and how absurd the world is. And it is scary and alarming how here's a story that takes place in the Old West, and yet you can transpose all these characters right into our world in 2022, and nothing really has changed. And Baba trying to have to learn to be courteous to all the people around him, have to keep his hands where they can see them. All of the stuff that he has to go through is the same today. And this book also touches a lot on sort of what Kareem was saying earlier about the land, the land that we have stolen from all the indigenous people. And a content warning here is in that book, it does use a lot of racial slurs in the book. So just so that you you prepare for that. But as the white folks expand, as they explore the land, this is what we have stolen from it. And, and this is one of the other themes sort of in the book. And what I love the most about Everest stories, and yes, I only have read two so far, but it sounds like that's sort of what he does, is that he tackles these really horrible subjects with such wit and such humor, like dark humor, but, you know, like in a very tongue-in-cheek way. And it's like, it's fun. And it's really fun. And it shouldn't be fun. But, and, and I've always admired creators who can do that, that make you absolutely furious about like what's going on, but yet you're laughing at the same time. I think it's an absolute gift that people can do that. And, and Percival Everett is just so good at it. So I would highly recommend, I'm sure this is unlike many Western that are out there. <laughs> um, so yeah, but anyway, a, a great social satire, a really kind of a funny book, and I would highly recommend you check out all his other books too. So this is God's Country by Percival Everett. Awesome. Thanks so much, Virginia. And I'm going to pitch a Western episode. I think that would be a lot of fun. <laughs> but I already read the only one that I want to read. <laughs> Done it! <laughs> exactly. No Space Westerns. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, before I talk about my book, we are going to take a brief, a brief break and uh, we are going to do our existential question. So my question for today is, what is your reading pet peeve? Uh, I'm going to leave it very open today. Is it plot holes? Is it love triangles? Um, is it paperbacks? No, I think it's the other way around. 
I can't remember. Do people like paperbacks or hardbacks? Anyway, let me know. What is your pet peeve? Okay. I didn't really know what to pick for this one. So there was something that was recently very annoying. I found in a book that I was reading. And have you ever had it where the book will have these pages that aren't properly like aligned? I've seen books cut like this recently and it's extremely annoying. Like the way that the pages, like you can't actually turn the pages properly. And it looks like it was like cut with a machete or something like that. It's just like, I don't know why they did that. Like I've read another book like this recently and I don't, like it just found super annoying the whole time I was reading it. Thank you so much for bringing this up. I feel like this is a, a form over function situation. I would love to hear more from our panelists. Really, Mark? <laughs> really? Deckled Edges, one of the most aesthetic, pleasing, like, sense-based experience that you can have while reading. <laughs> that That's your pet peeve? <laughs> Um, I think everything is Kareen's pet peeve. So, uh, <laughs> sorry, that one came out way harsher than I meant it to be. It's accurate. <laughs> I just meant Kareen has an opinion on everything, which is great and is one of the things that we love about her. Um, <laughs> yeah, trying to dig myself out of a hole here. All right, I'll I'll go next. <laughs> Um, so my pet peeve is a uh, Mary Sue uh, lead character. I probably mentioned before, I'm not a fan of fan fiction. And I think Mary Sue comes from fan fiction in initially. And it's this uh, character who sort of doesn't have a lot of agency and is very like blank. Uh, a lot of descriptions might be that they're like, pretty or like like just very kind of vague descriptions of them um and the idea is so that the reader can slot themselves into uh the main character which i totally understand the the reason for but for me i just want to hear about other people and not think about myself when i read so it really bugs me uh especially when that character doesn't have any agency and things just happen to them um yeah huge pet peeve well i think when fiona Put this question now and 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 they gave some examples um to us you know i was more so thinking more of like kind of form rather than the actual story itself because there's so many in the story i'm not even going to go there because there's too many things that i cannot stand in the story but in terms of like the actual format like the book itself you know me i cannot deal with cracked spine that drive me nuts if i see a book with a, i cannot i cannot so i think for me when you talk about paperback like i i i actually prefer much prefer hardcover it's for me is a much better reading experience and also i am always very worried about a paperback because when i read it i kind of have to read it like this because i really don't want to crack spine like it just it drives me nuts of course paperbacks often have very thin kind of paper also and that also kind of drives me crazy because i'm just like ah and i think that's probably why i am very much into ebooks because none of those problems will ever show up on a ebook so i think that's probably why but yeah so i find that if i'm reading a big fantasy it's always going to be a ebook version of it because i am worried about them fascinating and that's why you have the deckled egg edges so you can print on thicker paper mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there is a point not just the aesthetics but to each their own as Fiona said i just have very strong opinions about everything <laughs> 
<laughs> no in-betweens, which is probably why I don't get poetry. Um, so uh, I think I'm going to go very basic because I have a lot of feelings. Obviously, like content-wise, the thing I hate the most is love triangles because it's artificial and nonsense. None of the characters are real. They just represent something. One of them is boring but solid and dependable. The other one is dangerous but exciting. They're not people. They're not real. Um, but in terms of actual like physical book, what bothers me the most is because I buy books, buy more books than I probably should, is that when they change the format or size in the middle of a series, like let's say they publish the first three and then there's like a movie edition that comes out and they no longer do like the same illustrations and they publish it with like the movie poster on the front. It like drives me up the wall to the point where I will import them from another country so that they all match because they're a series. They should look the same. Yeah, I definitely feel that one. And I think we like occasionally get it from patrons too, who are like, you know, th like even not even owning them, but wanting them to take them out and be like, but it's confusing because this one's different. And you're just like, I know, I'm so sorry. I'm not a publisher. I want to fix it for you. Yeah, strongly felt. All right. Getting back to our genres that we don't usually read. Uh, I'm going to talk about a book that I read for book club. So yes, I complain a lot about having to read books that I don't choose, but I'm also very grateful because often it does bring me things outside of my wheelhouse that I end up enjoying. So I did struggle a little bit because I think I'm a bit of a random reader. But I went with uh, a nonfiction and specifically a non-biography or autobiography because I do read a lot of biography and autobiography, but I don't read much just like straight up nonfiction, though I do want to read more. And on top of that, this is a new age nonfiction. So for me, that's very much out of my comfort zone, <laughs> out of my zone of joy. Uh, I read Waking the Witch. Reflections on Women, Magic, and Power by Pam Grossman. So, yes, there is a very witchy member of my book club, and we often read about witches. <laughs> um, you know, which wouldn't be my choice. But I was actually very happy to read this. Um, Pam Grossman is the host of the podcast The Witch Wave in which I think she essentially talks about everything witchy. And this book was an interesting blend of pop culture, history, as well as she did throw a lot of autobiography in there, which was kind of surprising. And at first uh, made me a little bit uncomfortable. And then it was like, no, this is my comfort zone. <laughs> so I appreciated this read a lot in the end because I feel like I have feelings about witches and contemporary witches in particular. I can be a little bit harsh about people who consider themselves to be witches. And I feel like this book really showed me a lot about how that can be empowering, especially for women, and how it's also, you know, a way to have spirituality that is not part of some bigger religions. I wish that there was more history in it, but it actually had all sorts of um, really interesting history throughout, you know, of course, about the Salem witch trials, but also like about biblical references. And uh, it was quite, quite fascinating, actually. And then it also talked a lot about pop culture. So everything from Buffy to Sabrina, the teenage witch. And I actually found that my two 
watch list grew quite a bit from this, which uh, as many of our listeners will know, for me, that's a big plus with a book is when you come out of it with more that you want to watch and read. I wish that there had been more history in it, but ultimately, yeah, really appreciated the the content. Like on top of all of that, it was just an entertaining read. Uh, you didn't really know what she was going to throw at you. And, and there was quite a bit of humor in there and kind of left me thinking like, yeah, Wiccans are all right. I see how this is really positive for some people. And I feel like that was a big step for me. <laughs> so thank you to Book Club for bringing that Waking the Witch to Me by Pam Grossman. Definitely if you are already a witchy person, you will totally enjoy this. And I would encourage others who have a witchy person in their life and maybe are grappling with that a little bit to give this a read. Your book club sounds fascinating. Yes. <laughs> I won't go into details on air. <laughs> okay. Thank you uh, for joining us today for genres we don't usually read. Again, I always appreciate when our panelists are willing to uh, read something, you know, that that's outside of their comfort zone, because I know we all often read for comfort. And sometimes when you're giving an assignment, it stinks. <laughs> so thank you for doing that. I'll try to pick a nice, uh, calming theme next time. That is all for us today. We'll see you next time on Keep It Fictional. Who knows what we'll be doing next. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.